Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Ashley Wim. She's the owner and founder of Monsa Tea, which is based out of New York City. And I first kind of discovered Ashley and Monsa Tea, um, really just doing some research for some holiday shopping. And it was unlike anything I ever kind of came across. Um, you know, I'm not a big tea drinker. I don't really understand the nuances of tea. So it was educational. Our conversation from that standpoint, when I was doing the holiday shopping and everything, you know, my wife drinks a lot of tea. So that was kind of the idea that I had. But then, you know, obviously found out she was pregnant and some tea has caffeine. So that kind of got shut off. So it didn't really make sense, but started reaching out to people and tea, like I said, it's just not something that I really have a big background in. Uh, it wasn't something I grew up drinking, even though, you know, my mom did all the time. So wanted to kind of learn more about tea and rare tea and everything that she has going on. It seems like a really interesting business and it was a fascinating conversation. Super educational for me. I didn't really understand all the nuances and background of tea and just how deep you can dive into it. And it's very similar to the world of coffee or wine, where there's all these other layers and it's not just the stuff you see on the grocery store shelf. So you could follow her on Instagram at Mansa underscore T. And then also check out their website, MansaT.com, M-A-N-S-A. TEA.com that's got all their tea, uh, background, origin story, a different breakdown of all the age teas that they have available to as well. You can get teaware, tea sets, um, different tea components to brew your tea too as well. So you could follow us on Instagram as well at SpoonMob or on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, it's either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1. Just search us. You'll see our orange logo with the spoon and the handle in there. Uh, make sure to check out the website, SpoonMob.com. We have all the guests that we've had, all links to all the episodes up there and different pages that we built out. So different contact information where you can find them, uh, different food photos or wine photos or whatever, uh, as well as a few other things up there. There's a contact portal where you can write in questions, comments, feedback. If there's anything you ever wanted to ask a chef or a restaurant owner or sommelier, send that in. I will incorporate it in the episode as soon as we can, we kind of match it up with the, the best upcoming guests. And we'll let you know what episode that it's featured on too as well. Or you can reach out to us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. We get a bunch of emails from people that way. So if that's easier, feel free. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform you use. We're on all of them. Just search Spoon Mob. Uh, it should show up. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel you can subscribe to if you prefer to listen to podcasts through YouTube. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with certified tea sommelier, owner and founder of Monsa Tea, Ashley Lim. Thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast and do this. Admittedly, I don't know too, too much about tea, but I know my wife is a big tea drinker and has been for a number of years. We found a couple restaurants that do tea pairings, which has been a pretty unique experience too as well. And I first kind of learned about Monsa Tea just from doing some holiday shopping um, and was going to uh, get her some tea. But I want to get into kind of how you founded the company and tea and everything. But, you know, I like to always start at the beginning of everybody's kind of career. How did you kind of first get started with tea? How did you first get involved with it? First of all, I'm so excited to be here. So thank you, Ray, for inviting me. So I grew up around aged tea. And I actually say that in a quite literal sense. My dad's the tea enthusiast in our family. So I grew up around his tea, not the tea I was drinking. To tell you the truth, it wasn't love at first sight for me. So despite having very nice aged tea around the house, I was drinking, you know, the normal teas like the tea bag, some loose leaf tea, like the oolong matcha, black green, in you know, the herbals, but nothing too fancy. 
And it was only when my dad was home to brew the real nice ones that I partook in his tea ritual. So I knew I had first experience knowing that AHT can be difficult to break into, can be quite difficult to understand. What's also interesting about you know, poor tea enthusiasts is that they swear by poor tea. You know, they think it's the best tea, but I always found it interesting when you try it for the first time or those non-enthusiasts try for the first time that, you know, you feel like you're not really understanding the tea. And they would describe the tea in certain ways as it, and they will describe the tea as sweet and you might actually not taste sweetness. You might actually taste bitter. So there's this almost like enigma around poor tea for the non-enthusiasts. So, and then I could not understand why there are many poor tea connoisseurs, you know, raving about this tea. And interestingly enough, I did cross the bridge over to becoming one of those people. And now it's my favorite tea. And I would say that two main things happened to me that really opened my eyes to the world of HT. And that is a one, changing my brewing method. And the second one is trying the right teas. Now, these days, I always brew in gongfu style. Gongfu style is, you can kind of describe it as Chinese tea ceremony, but it doesn't have to be necessarily. It could be the simplified version of it. In essence, it's about using large quantities of tea leaves and small amount of water. So, for example... If you were you know, just brewing loose leaf tea in Western style, you might use you know, two grams um, for a large cup and a mug or something. In Gongfu style brewing, you actually use large quantities of tea. So instead of two grams, you might use you know five to seven grams in almost English teacup size type of vessel. So the ratio is different and also the teaware is different. And actually having changed my brewing method, I actually began to taste more of the sweetness that the enthusiast was talking about and also the nuances. And definitely also trying the right teas really helped. So I think the reason why I couldn't fall in love the first time was that sometimes I think my dad was giving me too fancy of a tea for my level at the time. I realized that I actually need little bit baby, baby steps along the way, you know, and um, that's actually why I started Monza Tea was that is to introduce tea lovers to HT in a more beginner friendly way, not the way I got into it, but, you know, so that people can skip those steps. That's why we sell our Gong Fu teaware as well as our you know, Monza classics are made up of our basically I call them gateway HTs where they're beginner friendly of HT to begin with. So now, obviously, tea wasn't your first kind of initial career path, right? You know, you went to Columbia University. I mean, you graduated summa cum laude, bachelor's in chemistry, very impressive educational resume that you went through with, with everything. What was your kind of intended career path? Where did you think you were originally headed before you started your own company? So I actually tried out many potential career paths. I think depending on which time period, my answer will be different. I know I tried food chemistry, chemistry, acting, law, medicine. Actually, my initial passion was food chemistry and this dates back even you know, to high school. Uh, my first ever internship was at a flavor company. Um, I loved the food space. I was very interested in flavors. I was actually loved the experience. And at the time, I actually wanted to go to college to study food chemistry. The only reason I couldn't slash didn't go is because 
Now, Cornell has a wonderful food chemistry program, but it's under College of Agriculture. And my Asian parents could not understand that I wanted to go to College of Agriculture. And they were like, why, why are we sending you to college to, so they can become a farmer? They just couldn't you know, understand. They eventually convinced me that maybe I should go you know, study broader chemistry and later on specialize in food chemistry if I really want to focus on food chemistry. At that time, I bought the logic. But unfortunately, when I got to college, I really didn't enjoy pure theoretical chemistry as much as I like the application part of chemistry in food. So I sort of lost my interest there and you know, trying a different career path or different internships and hence the long, you know, laundry list I mentioned. And, and that's also because I really live by this, that now, it's okay to try and fail, but I do not want to lay on my deathbed and think, oh, damn, I should have tried that. But it's too late, right? Now you can't. So I always would prefer to try things out and then roll it out and move on rather than, you know, really have those regrets that I should have tried. You, you know, worked at a bunch of different places, you know, Boss Consulting Group, Booze and Company and whatnot. And then eventually you wind up going to school, right? You went back to business school for MBA. Even still at that time, you know, over the course of the six years, how involved were you with tea? Or is it just kind of a hobby that you had on the side that, you know, obviously you're drinking tea, you know, throughout that time, but still up to that point, did you ever have an inkling of like, maybe I could turn this into a business? Before business school, I did, BCG had, a so Boston Consulting Group had this externship program where I could take six months off or off of BCG to basically try something else that's not BCG, but be an, and guaranteed a spot back to work there even after the six months over. So during that time, I did test out this tea idea. Um, at the time, my brother launched a tea company in Korea uh, with his now wife, and they're still running the business. But at that time, so what I did was I went to Korea to work on their business with them for six months. That was sort of my first hands-on experience and anything related to tea. My takeaway from the six months was that it was very hard working with a family member whose working style and communication style is just very different from you. And I did not want to sort of have any negative impact towards our relationship as a family member. So I did I decided not to continue to work with them. And I did flow back and I went back to the company. That was sort of the experience. And I just remember thinking then that I still want to try something entrepreneurial. Um, I wasn't actually sure if I want to do tea here or something else at that point, just after the six months. I think I was just trying to still wrap my head around you know, what just happened the six months. That was my experience. And I didn't have a solid you know, idea to go into tea afterwards just yet. Do you remember the moment when you had that solid idea? Like that moment where you're like, yeah, it's time. Like I want to do this. It happened during business school. So I was still, you know, I went to business school and I really, I still wanted to do entrepreneurship. Didn't know exactly in what. And uh, so I spent the two years trying to pick something or try to see if I can pick one. It wasn't until the Thanksgiving of second year, I answered this one crucial question that really helped me decide. And the question was, what would I do if I were to win the lottery tomorrow? So it kind of takes out all the 
financial obligation out of the equation and just like purely focus on what I want to do. And I wrote two things. So one was that I wanted to do something, the food space, ideally healthy food space so that, you know, I feel like I'm when I'm serving or if someone buy my product that you know, I'm not selling a burger, you know, that's like technically bad for your health, although it might be great for your mental health, right? I want it to be health product. Two, I wanted to also get a chance to spend more time with my family, working more indirectly, if it makes sense. Because I, based on my first experience, I did not want to be, you know, day to day with my family on matters. But I did like that, you know, because they're in Asia that I don't really get to see them often, but I thought it was nice to be able to work with them in certain ways. And then, you know, tea sort of came up the top of the list. Uh, my dad actually used to have a wholesale tea business in China, even before my brother got into his tea business. So this also just gave me the opportunity to work and talk to my dad more about tea. So what was the reaction friends, family, when you tell them that you're going to start your own tea company, basically give up the business life essentially and become an entrepreneur? My family is, I would say, supportive of her whatever I want to do. The reason why I hesitated a little is because it's also probably because they know that if I want to do something, they won't be able to stop me from doing it. So not sure which way the, you know, how they were feeling inside. You know, friends are supported or excited. You know, a lot of friends were, you know, going to full-time job afterwards. So they thought it was kind of cool that I'm doing something different. But so they they all liked the idea of, or were supportive of me doing entrepreneurship. But it's interesting because not everyone's a tea drinker. It's hard for someone to get excited about a concept if they're really not the target market, right? I would say it was a mixed response in that regard about this actual specific idea of going down the tea route. So 2018, I think, is when you officially started Mansa Tea. What was kind of the early reception like when you first started and finally get the ball rolling? It, it really varied by people. So on the type of tea that people liked. And I would divide it also by the the tea, just general tea lovers, and also the restaurants on like the hospitality business that we work with. So with general tea lovers, I think with any food or beverage product, everyone has their own preference on their flavor profile that they enjoy, right? Um, So when, you know, someone thinks of tea, they have their like favorite flavor profile of what they like. Sometimes it was hard for us to hit that exact flavor profile with few HT that we launched with. We actually started with the five different uh, teas in the sampler. And what we usually found was that people gravitate towards, you know, sweet tea lover people who would gravitate towards our, you know, white peony, white tea, and maybe even our raw puer, which is kind of like green tea and flavor profile wise. And we will find people who like more bold and kind of more black tea, but perhaps more earthy version of it. And they would actually gravitate towards gravitate towards like right where and those two. So we actually saw these divide almost depending on what kind of tea they like. So that was actually interesting to see. And so like the first couple of years, your kind of original business model was really like kind of high-end tea service for restaurants and like luxury hotels, right? Like that's initially kind of what you broke into. 
We started by working with high-end restaurants, so the Michelin star restaurants and hotels in New York. I think that's also where it was very interesting. That's when you'll have people who been, I would say, almost trained in tasting complexity in food and drinks, and you bring these really high quality tea to them. You definitely get the response that you would expect from someone who enjoys these teas. Even when someone is not a tea drinker, right?、Uh, you you can be a you know director of beverage at one of these restaurants, and but not a tea fanatic, for example, the person would actually be able to tell that this is a really quality beverage. That was actually really interesting to see because、um, sometimes when I just share with a friend who's, who may not be a tea enthusiast or you know, a tea lover who has prefers certain types of tea, and some people might. It tastes five and say I only like two of the five. But you actually see that people in the food world, professionally, they, I would actually appreciate all of them, and for very different reasons. How difficult is it to source tea and import tea? Because most of your tea comes from overseas, right? Yes. So I think it helps that for us, it helped that you know my dad had used to have a wholesale tea business in China, so he actually helped me a lot with the sourcing and importing of. A tea. Now, I think without any of those connections, it would be hard to start from scratch. So we source from small tea farmers in Asia, and some of these farmers don't really have a website. It's not an easy website that will just pop up on Google search, right? That you can just click through and you know contact via email. It's sort of hard if you are not on site, and even when you're on site, it can be hard to find them. But、there are definitely areas, and it would look like there is a tea house, but you know, the owner might not be there, you know, that day. So it can be difficult to start until you, you know, have the right contacts and that you trust that they, those who you know, that they will actually bring quality tea from year to year. So I think like 2019, you wind up going and becoming a certified tea sommelier. From the UK Tea Academy, what was that process like? Because I've talked to a lot of wine sommeliers, but never a tea sommelier. I had no idea that program even existed until you know doing some research. What all was that like? I personally love the experience. I love you know, learning new things. It was very fun for me personally. So first of all, it was in the UK, so I actually have to take some time off and you know, travel to London to take this. And the reason why I Specifically, pick this program over you know any other programs in the world was that、uh, one it came highly recommended by my tea sommelier friend Gabriel Jamal, who used to be a tea sommelier at the Baca Hotel, and you know we worked on you know, pairings and things like that in the past. And she actually recommended this program, and she also went through. And one of the other reasons why she recommended was that. A lot of the classes are taught by Jane Pettigrew, and she's been in the industry for. Don't quote me on the the number of years because I know it's you know forty or a big number. You know, it's something up there. Basically, her entire life, you can call it. So, you know, she's a tea educator, tea historian. You know, fill in the blank. You know, related to tea, she probably knows. And and she was teaching it. So、um, that was one of the reasons why I decided to go to that program. Although I. I'd actually have to travel for it, and there are multiple levels. So the academy offered three levels: one sort of like the more the 
the first level is more about the basic mastery of different types of teas. Um, the level two is a sommelier one, which which is what I took. And that one actually deep dives into the, in addition to what you learn in level one, it's that we deep dive into the main region, tea, main tea regions, and the main teas produced from those regions. The classes are fun. You know, it's a mix of, of course, you know, theory on on how the type of tea is produced and some of the um, famous tea produced from the region and of course tasting them. So <laughs> that's my favorite part, right? And doing tasting notes, you know, brewing and all that. And at the end of the course, we take exams to you know, kind of graduate or get the certificate. And the exam is in two parts. The first part is, is written, um, has some tasting components to it as well. And then the second component is actually live. And it's interesting because um, it's one-on-one with Jane, Jane Pettigrew. She actually invites you over to her home. <laughs> I went over to her home. And so she will ask questions that you actually have to verbally answer uh, some of them. And then she also asks you to you know, brew certain teas and then you have to brew and then you know we taste it. And she kind of marks you on the tea's profile. And you also have to talk through what the tea is and the tasting notes and everything about the tea that you know, basically. And yes, I thought it was interesting that I was at her home. So you mentioned there's three levels. So what's the third level? So level three is master level. And this one, you each class is focused on almost even deep diving further into those regions and the teas. So for example, technically a dark tea or aged tea is not part of the sommelier program that I took. Although I asked a bunch of questions about it because I was, you know, that was sort of my, that is my specialty. I want to learn more about it, but there is a separate class that just focuses on that as well. There are basically these very specific topics in tea that, um, people would take. How long is each level? Like, is it just a couple days for like the first level, then like a week for the second level, or is it multiple weeks? For the level one, I believe it's probably a few days, uh, less than a week. Uh, level two, I believe um, it was more like two weeks. And because there's an exam and you know, not everyone's going to be prepare for the exam right after classes. Some people actually decide to, you know, take some time off and then go study and then come back and take the exam. You know, I actually had to come back here, right? So I took it right afterwards. So for me, I think it was about two weeks of, you know, taking the classes and then just taking the exam. But it also helped that, you know, I've been working on Monza already at that point that I really did a you know, a lot of some of the deep dives to learn it on my own. So it was a little bit easier for me to do that than, um, let's say, I think people in Europe typically took time in between the actual classes and the tests. Is the UK the only place that does this uh, T sommelier certification? Or is there anything in China or India or any other countries that are really big in the T? Do they do anything like that? China definitely has a lot of programs. Um, I did not look into it because most of the programs will be in Chinese and I wanted to take classes in English. So there's that definitely the language part that you have to get over. So there are definitely these programs, you know, in different countries. I did not personally look into India. Also, UK is just easier to travel to and already it was already recommended. The program was recommended by uh, a friend that I know. So um, I kind of knew what I was getting into. But I would say 
because the tea sommelier certificate is not as standardized as wine sommelier process, right? It, there is no sort of the main institution that oversees a process globally, right? Or, or at least, you know, multiple like big countries that I think that's the main difference I would say. Um, so for example, actually, um, I've also just heard, I'm not you know, quoting any names or institutions, but I did also hear that, not the one that I went to, but there are some institutions that weren't really, really rigorous. So, you know, people might go through it, you can you know, pay the money to get the education, but it might not turn out to be as rigorous as some others. So I think that's sort of one thing that's lacking in the tea world that, you know, wine world has. Any interest in doing the the final level or does that not really apply to kind of what you're doing now because of the aged component? I think for me, it was that I could, but I don't really need it. So I didn't do it. I think I would have done it had it been in New York because it's not like you can take all these classes within a week and then fly back here. These are because these are very specialized classes. It's sort of random across the the calendar days, you know, across the year. So it's really hard for me to coordinate that as someone who's US based um, versus if it's, it's in New York, you know, I live in New York, then, you know, I can just go take a class and then come back home right away. And then I think I would have probably done it. But it with travel, it's a little bit tricky. So then, you know, your business is kind of chugging along and then kind of COVID happens and you basically pivot to doing virtual tea tastings at that point, right? Yeah, it was born out of COVID. Um, so before that, I did in-person workshops and tastings. So the tasting and tea education and workshop was not foreign to me. It was just the in-person versus virtual that was, I mean, not just for me, right? I think a lot of us sort of experienced that during COVID. Um, so before COVID, I used to do you know tea workshops at Mission Star Hotels, I'm sorry, Mission Star Restaurants and these hotels partners that we had and you know, did you know, pairings and all that. Now, when we switched to virtual, it actually started out as, oh, let's try it. Just try it out because at that time, we didn't even know how long COVID was going to last, right? Um, you're wondering, is it going to be just live with it? Is it going to become the new flu? Is this going to last six months, one year? We didn't know. So we, we wanted to try it out since we couldn't um, do any of our in-person events. We, I remember we first started at that point, I didn't have even Zoom, right? I think I had Google Meet. <laughs> we did our first session and you know, I was surprised that people first signed up for the virtual tea tasting because I actually didn't know what to really expect. So we started doing it and you know, we got more requests so we kept doing it more. And that's so it was really born, yeah, naturally that um, we, there was enough demand for it. So we kept up with it to meet the demand. But I would say it's actually a little bit different. Of course, in person or virtual, right, it is different. But specifically for tea, even when compared to wine, for example, I'd say doing tea tasting virtually can be difficult in certain ways. And when I what I mean by that is because when we do in-person events, we brew tea on site. So I know exactly what people are tasting. So it's akin to having your wine pour into your glass. Now, when you take that to virtual setting, 
it's not a big deal for wine tasting because you just pop open a bottle of wine and you pour it. And yes, there's a minor difference and maybe the temperature and maybe if you use a fancy decanter and all that. But for the most part, you know how that wine's going to taste like. But with tea, depending on how you brew it, what kind of brewing equipments you have, do you have a temperature controlled kettle or not? You know, all these factors can actually influence the brew that you will get from the same exact tea, right? Not everyone's going to have a scale. So it took me a while to figure that part out and how to smooth it out to make it seamless like our in-person events in the beginning. Did you eventually get into a point where like a lot of virtual wine tastings, they would, you know, mail the bottles to people and stuff like that. Did you guys start doing that where it was like, we'll mail the tea to you and like kind of include instructions on get your water to this temperature, put this amount in, kind of break it down. So it kind of controlled the process a little bit more. So we do ship our teas. The teaware is also a tricky one. Um, so we have a way around instructing people even without teaware now. I personally, my favorite is a brewing class. So Gaiwan brewing class is my favorite because you actually get to learn you know, how about how to brew. And with that class, everyone's sort of working with the same teaware, right? And with that, we ship out both tea and teaware. But sometimes, you know, people want to just do, you know, multiple tastings and some of that, and then we do sort of say, we do give as much guideline as we can possible, of course. Uh, and we work with you know people with large teapots, small teapots, and any variations and materials. But it is actually, it makes and much you know, seamless when everyone's using the same TNT wear for sure. Did you ever think the education component of tea would be such a big part of what you do now? Um, not in the beginning. If someone from the future, you know, came and told me one day that, hey, tea education would be a big part of what, you know, what you do. If I were to hear that in the beginning, I wouldn't be surprised at hearing it. But it wasn't something that I thought actively that it was going to be part of what I do. And and personally, I always love teaching. You know, I as mentioned earlier, I you know, teach in college. I I used to tutor in high school all the time. You know, somewhere between high school and college, I spent teaching the SATs. And uh, even now, I love you know mentoring, and I love that education part of it. So, where's the best place for someone new to the world of tea, especially? purity, where should they start? You know, what's the easiest way for somebody to kind of get into it? Is there a certain tea that they should start with, a certain flavor profile? Ideally, I would actually recommend that people get a Gaiwan tea set so you can start gongfu brewing. So if you remember what I said, you know, earlier today that the brewing really changed the way I enjoy aged tea now. So I think changing a brewing method is a must. Once you have the teaware, the right teaware to brew the tea. I typically recommend the teas depending on what type of tea you currently like. So for example, if you enjoy green tea as your main type of tea that you drink, I recommend raw puer. Uh, we have a two that comes to my mind. Um, these were actually my, personally my gateway aged teas. And these are, there's a Iwu 2018 Raw Puer. I think we are, we're just renaming things. So it might not be. Let me quite quickly check what that is. And this is actually happening in, not even kidding, like next week. So if you enjoy green tea, then I would recommend 
raw puer. So raw puer is one of the two types of puer tea, and puer teas, I would say, probably the most famous aged tea out there. And raw puer is the naturally fermented one. The other one is called ripe puer, which actually go through expedited fermentation process. When I say naturally fermented, it means that when it first starts out, it starts out as green tea. I would actually describe it as sun-dried green tea, and it ferments over time, becomes less green tea-like over time. So if you want a raw puer tea that's as close to green tea profile, you can get a young raw puer tea, you know, within would say a year or you know maybe two years less than two years old and if you want to get a almost sweeter version of it then you can get a more aged one from there i would say and the flavorful profile can vary it can actually be sweeter it can be more smoky the sweet raw puer i would recommend if you like sweeter profile is iwu wild tree raw puer this one actually is a it's in our reserve collection so it's it's not just for beginners. It's actually a very amazing tea, even for you know tea enthusiasts. But this one really helps you understand what poor tea enthusiasts mean when they say the sweetness, the lasting sweetness in tea. This one really nails that concept. And it's just a really nice, smooth tea. If you like something a little bit smoky or something a bit more character, I would recommend smoky puer. So we have smoky puer in different vintages. We have 14, 15, and 17. And the 17 has the most smoky profile. Over time, the smokiness mellows out. So the youngest of the three has the most smoky profile. And I describe the flavor profile as kind of like drinking whiskey, smoky whiskey without the alcohol kick is how I describe it. So if you like smoky beverages, this is definitely up on the list. If you typically like sweeter or just something more floral and sweet in general, I recommend our aged white tea. So specifically, I personally love white peony and I haven't seen anyone say bad things about this tea, honestly. So it's a really safe one. If when, whenever someone comes to me and say, I need to get a gift for a tea lover and I have no idea what this person likes, this is the tea I recommend because it's very fail-proof. And it's just floral, sweet. It's kind of like drinking liquid honey. One of my friends described it. So my peony is probably say the easiest aged tea to get into. If someone comes to me and says, I actually like something bold and earthy, then I recommend our earthy puer. It's going to be very smooth and it's the color of the, the color of the brew tea is quite dark actually. So it looks like it's going to be very bitter just based on the color. I think a lot of people think of the coffee color as, okay, it's going to be quite bitter on, in terms of taste profile, but uh, right. So earthy puer, which is actually ripe puer tea. So earlier I mentioned the two different types of puer tea. So this is the other one that's actually fully fermented. It's actually very smooth, earthy and sweet, not sugar sweet, but as in not dry, it's on the sweeter side usually recommend people to start with one of the three, depending on your preference. I've traveled a decent amount, you know, not as much as a lot of people and definitely not as much as I would like to, but you know, there's a lot of kind of elevated fine dining Michelin restaurants that don't have a tea program or a coffee program even, which is pretty crazy when you actually kind of think about the whole encapsulation of the service that they're trying to provide and the experience. 
why do you think there aren't more places that have a tea program? You know, there's a place that we went to in Texas called uh, Carte Blanche, and they do a tea pairing with a tasting menu. And it was fantastic, but it's super hard to find anything in that style, probably like outside of, you know, New York, maybe Chicago and LA, at least here in the States. Is that just lack of education, lack of demand? Yeah, I would say literal both. I mean, if you think about the last time you ordered tea at a restaurant, not including a dim sum place, right, where they actively serve you tea, they're not that many. Just in general, right, if you are out for a out for a dinner with a group of friends, let's say, right? How many people at the table are actively asking if there's tea on the menu, right? Not many. And I haven't really seen that many, right? So people order either. So restaurants are businesses, right? They're not going to sell items that do not sell, right? They want to meet the demand of their customers. So I think definitely there is the demand side of things. And because tea is not as mainstream as let's say, uh, coffee or wine and restaurants are trying to make their menus more appealing to more people right so um, i've seen actually non-alcoholic pairing menu more often than tea pairing menu so non-alcoholic pairing that includes some tea pairings but it also includes you know other non-tea beverages within that menu so in that aspect what they're trying to do is they're trying to cater to people who are not only tea enthusiasts but also people who are generally looking for a non-alcoholic alternative and tea happens to be one of that and think when the tea enthusiast also sees that and they might also be you know opting into that menu so i think having a non-alcoholic pairing menu is the reason why i see more of non-alcoholic pairing menu than tea pairing menus because it appeals to more people than just the tea enthusiasts. I think you can also say the same about wine pairing menu, actually. And that, of course, in the US, wine is, uh, I would say, one of the main alcoholic beverages, right? I mean, of course, there's whiskey and other alcoholic beverages as well. But it's kind of like asking why I don't, why don't you see a beer pairing menu or, you know, something specific, right? But uh, in the US, I think that also depends on cuisines as well. And that for cuisines, which wine is not the dominant alcoholic beverage, they, they might have an alcohol pairing menu with both wine and other alcoholic beverages included, right? So if you go to a Japanese restaurant, I'm serving like sake pairing, right? So I think it also depends on which cuisine you're talking about. With the aged teas that you were kind of referencing to as well, different years, is that all they're harvested in that year? You know, because like wines, there's a couple different variations. There's wines where they're all harvested in that year. There's wines that are, you know, blends of a few different years and stuff like that. Is that kind of the same for tea? Yeah. So we used a harvest date or harvest you know, time and year for, we don't really do blends just yet. We we keep it single origin and single I would say harvest <laughs> and we haven't done much blending because we do want to highlight the changes of flavor that different vintages can bring. But although I say that I did try blending two years, just small amounts. You know, I tried it because someone asked me about it and I was, I told myself, well, I can't answer that question if I don't try. So I blended the two and actually I did find it good, if not better than the two. So, and, you know, these two, I actually would enjoy just as, you know, single, single vintage as well. So it did surprise me. So it might be something that 
no, we should be doing more actually. Is there caffeine in Poirier tea or anything like that? Or is it mostly like so minimal that it doesn't even like register compared to like a cup of coffee? So Poirier tea definitely has caffeine on so does all tea that comes from Camellia sinensis tea plant. When I say the tea plant, it's the tea plant that that's used. So actually the six types of teas, all six types of teas, and that is white, yellow, green, oolong, black, dark tea. And dark tea is where poor tea falls under. All these six types of teas are made from tea leaves from the Camellia sinensis tea plant. So it's a it's one um, single tea plant. And what's not included is all these flower and herbal teas, right? It's confusing because it still has the word tea in it. Um, because you can also take call it tisans if you don't want to use the word tea. So these, because these herbal and flower teas come from different plants, right? It can be from lavender plant. It can't be from like rose, right? It can be from rose flower rose. So these are all different. It's not from Camellia They don't have caffeine because poor tea is made from one of tea plants. It does have caffeine, but in general, I would say tea does have less caffeine than coffee. So if you were to you know, really compare coffee versus tea, that would definitely be less. Is tea closer to coffee or wine? Because everything you've described up this far, I see similarities between the process of wine, but I also see it in the process of coffee. And even a lot of it is similar to the process of uh, the whole bean to bar chocolate movement, where you're going to these obscure kind of regions of a country, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, you know, they might not have a website. You're not even hundred percent certain the person that you're meeting is the person that you need to meet. Would you say it's closer to coffee or wine overall and kind of take everything into account, the process and selling and all that stuff? I would say wine, not take into account, of course, the alcohol part. The way I like to think about it is think of a quintessential coffee flavor. Like what are you thinking? I'm thinking caramel personally, but you have your kind of a coffee flavor or like you have this image of coffee that you think of, right? Now think of a quintessential wine flavor or image of wine. Like what are you thinking? Probably cherry, kind of plum, currant, something like that. So something like red wine, it sounds like, right? Which from those, I would say your definition of coffee or your image of coffee is similar to many most other coffee images that are out there. I would say their coffees feel more similar across the board and relative terms, right? Of course, they're the lighter one and you know their beans can be you know from light to dark roast and all that. But compared to red wine versus white wine, I think there's larger difference in flavor profile. Even I think just looking at a color, the simplest color, right? red and you know white wine very different color scheme altogether but coffee it's going to be in that brown range right it's almost looking at beer almost right that beer you kind of look at the shades of you know yellow orange and maybe darker i kind of view it and that of course if a coffee expert is listening to this the coffee expert is going to debunk this and say, no, actually, you know, coffee has all this large range. And I, and I do understand that. I talk to coffee experts and, you know, different fermentation methods. And I really, really understand all that. But I think because with wine, right, there's white wine, rose, red wine, of 
for in so many different types of wine. And it's kind of similar to tea in that we got black tea, green tea, oolong, you know, white, and just the range of flavor profile that you can get from tea, it's just wider. And kind of if you think about um, like fruit wine, right? Fruit wine and all these non-grape-based wines, it's akin to us having like herbal tea and flower tea in the tea world and that it's not from the tea plant, but it's from you know, other uh, plants. I would say if you walked down the street or asked anybody on the street, name teas that they're familiar with, you know, you'd get, you know, breakfast, Earl Grey, probably black tea, green tea, maybe matcha. What do you think is kind of the next one in line? If there is one that would become kind of a popularized tea? I would say oolong or maybe white oolong. Yeah. The reason was oolong can have a very flashy flavor profile. And I think a lot of people just gear towards that, especially um, in the beginning when someone's getting into tea or they're trying to go from tea back to loose leaf tea, then oolong can really, it's, it's a very showy tea. So I think it's just easier to be a little bit wowed by oolong versus something a little bit more subdued. I think it takes time to kind of get used to that. Not all teas can be aged, right? No. Is that just based on the the plant itself or is it based on like how they're harvested? So I would say quality and preparation are the two reasons. Not all bottles of wine can be aged, right? And I'm making wine reference where I'm sure I actually made more wine references today than coffee. <laughs> um, so meaning I think tea is closer to wine. It's just like how you can't age in all bottles of wine, right? And I think there's a quality factor for sure. And that some actually would go down in quality over time that, that it's better drunk fresh, but it's not always about quality, right? You could have a really you know, good quality wine that's not appropriate for aging. So it's not only quality, it's also about the preparation and what the maker intended. And that, you know, some of fresh green tea that's is very high quality, but it's not for aging. Um, it's also how it's made and whether it was made with aging in mind. Tea is very big in the UK and China, but then also mostly like any sort of country that was a British colony um, way back when India, Australia, not really mainstream in America though. Why is that? And do you think it can get there? I think we have to look at the history of this country and where tea comes from in this country, right? And in order for tea to be a mainstream product, it needs to be part of the country's culture. And countries with deep tea culture are either growing their own tea or have been importing tea for a long time. We do not grow tea like India and China, right? <laughs> Northeast actually has a terrible climate for tea, though there are actually a few places um, in the U.S. growing tea now or trying to grow tea now. On um, and the U.S. Does, does not have much history of importing tea and encouraging tea consumption. And in that, yes, you know, we've imported tea uh, from the British, right? And But then because there was such a high tea-related tax um, on the colonies you know, prior to the Revolutionary War, and that was, that was really discouraging you know, tea consumption, consumption, right? It's a very expensive product. And also... John Adams actually, you know, even went even went as far as declaring tea as, you know, a trader's drink, right? And you know, there was a period where Americans actually united and vowed to only serve coffee in their homes, right? And because 
their mice tea, called British, and drinking it was sort of, you know, seen as a betrayal to the colonies. So really over the 10 years period between 1773 to 1783, and people were really drinking coffee. I think when you develop a taste for coffee for 10 years, it's hard to go back. Not that it's impossible, right? And people switch over, but once you grow taste buds for something, and especially if, you know, if there's a caffeine source, it is hard to go back. And I, I see this too in that in other countries as well. Um, not you know exactly the scenario, but you know, countries with deep tea culture have an event in history where they try to wipe out tea from the culture, and then that cult- the tea culture can actually be really hard to get back into the mainstream again. An um, example of that is we study you know, Korean tea culture, for example. Korea grows tea, and of course, there's more green tea everywhere, and like the low poly green tea, like in tea bags everywhere, and things like that. But it actually does not have as much of a strong tea culture compared to Japan and you know, China. And that also goes back all the way in time as well, when it used to be under Japan for a, for a while, when they had the Korean War. And so that kind of big historical movement where, where they're trying to suppress you know, like tea culture, it can actually you know, have a big impact in a country's tea culture and tea consumption, even to this day. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I was fishing for like some other answer besides the historical, like, yeah, the American Revolution basically wiped out our tea consumption too. But it makes complete sense, you know, when you when you think about it and you look at all the reasons why all that stuff happened. Reusing tea, is that good, bad? Is that possible? When you say reusing, you're talking about like rebrewing, right? Yeah. I think rebrewing's right. I don't think everyone brews it correctly the first time to make it sense for brewing the second time. What I mean by that is a lot of people overbrew their tea. Um, it's a pet peeve of mine. And you know, actually some restaurants do this. And that the extreme case of this is just never taking out your tea leaves from your brewed tea, just letting it sit there for indefinitely. You know, if it's in a large pot and you're, if you're not taking out the strainer with the leaves in it, you're continuously brewing the tea leaves. So in that case, yes, the you know some people fill the pot, but it's the rebrewing won't be as good. And actually, even from the first brew, you're constantly overbrewing, so it's going to be bitter. If you actually correctly steep the first time without oversteeping it, remove the tea leaves from the brewed tea, and then you know when you're done with the first cup, put the leaves back under hot water and then brew it. Uh, with high quality tea leaves, it should be perfectly fine. And of course, you have to keep in mind, typically, if you want to rebrew tea leaves, you want to use more than a small amount, right? If you're having too little tea to start with, it's going to be a little bit hard there too. Typically with actually Gaiwan brewing, so I mentioned you know, Kung Fu brewing earlier, because you're using such a large amount of tea with small amount of water, that you can actually brew like you know five, seven times. And sometimes even more. You can do even like 13, you know, depending on the quality and the amount of tea used. So what's the most important part of the tea brewing process then? Like, you know, what's the most important thing needed? Is it great tea leaves or high quality tea leaves, the water temp container or, you know, the teaware that you're using? Is there anything or is it just a combination of all of it? I would go with 
quality of tea and the teaware, because those two are sort of what I mentioned in the beginning as well, that's, that really helps understand the tea. Now, if I have to choose one or the other, I would go with quality tea because if the quality just not there, you just, no matter what container you're giving me, you know, what teaware you're giving me, you can't really salvage it. It's just, you just can't go any higher from there, but at least with high quality tea, you have a lot of room to kind of play around with. So I'll go with quality of tea. I heard where tea can get pretty expensive, pretty pricey. How pricey are we talking? Like what's the most expensive like tea that's out there? I don't know the price of out there exactly, but the one that we actually have is $20,000 for about 200 grams. Let's transition grams into what would that be ounces wise? 28 grams per ounce. So I divide 200 by 28. It's about seven ounces. Uh, so most poor teas comes in you know, tea cakes or tea blocks. So this will be a 200 gram you know, tea block. And this will be specific for a tea made in Laobanjiang area. So you can kind of call this like the ground crew of uh, poor tea. So we used to actually sell this at a lower price. And I got a call from my dad saying, I have to stop selling this product because right, it's selling for 20K for 200 grams at auctions. And I should stop selling it for a much lower price. So I, yeah. So that's why I know these numbers for this specific product. Is that like one of the most expensive ones out there? Uh, with Puer, I would say this is pretty up there. Yeah. With like the world of wine, there's wines that are super rare or super old or always thought to be the best, right? Mostly because people collect it and it has to be the best. It's the oldest. It's the most expensive. Is that kind of the same with tea where people generally assume like the older or more expensive it is, the better it is, but that might not always be the case? Yeah, I would say older is definitely not better for all teas. As I mentioned earlier, some teas are not meant to be that old. And even for aged teas, I think there is that optimal point of flavor that tea reaches and then it slowly declines from there. And that optimal point might be different depending on the tea, depending on harvest year, depending on the storage condition, humid, is it dry? So it depends. So I wouldn't always say tea from 100 years ago is going to be better than something that's 15 years old. Now, rarity is an an interesting question, right? That in the tea world, typically you look at the not only the terroir, right? The terroir of Labanjang is what I mentioned earlier that is a really famous place, but also the age of tea tree. Um, so it's equivalent to the you know, age of the, the grapevines, right? That that you look at the actual like plant. How old is the plant or the tree? It's the actual tree, and and definitely older the tea tree. I would say typically better the tea because the quality of the raw material is better. Uh, but then, of course, if you look at rarity, those trees are going to be rare. There are not as many thousand-year-old tea trees compared to a five, ten-year-old, right? It's not something we can plant in our generation and expect it to be thousand years old. So that does, there is a correlation, of course, with the rarity. If it's quality and rare, I think those combos. So if you have the terroir and it's the oldest tea tree in that terroir and uh, the person who made it 
you know, has you know, generational experience of making that tea. And it's an awesome vintage, right? That year I had a great harvest and you know, vintage. And then the number of years it's been aged is optimal. Although I would say this is probably the least important because if it's less, you can just age yourself a little bit more, right? So yeah, I would actually discount that. I would say the vintage is more important than how long it's been aged. Those four, I would say. Adding things to tea like honey, is that a no-no or is that dependent upon the quality of the honey or just the person? I would say first depends on the quality of tea. I typically won't add anything to a really nice tea. It's, it's like making sangria out of Grand Cru wine, you know, like no one does it. But can you do it? Yes. Like if you have so much money <laughs> and, you know, if you want to play around with it, yes. But you just don't do it because it's you, you got to honor the product, right? So that's one. But yes, do we make sangria out of, you know, regular quality wine? Absolutely. Can we add honey, lemon and whatever we want and make cocktails out of you know, regular tea? Absolutely. With higher quality tea, I typically recommend pairing over actually direct addition of anything. And I think pairing is always interesting. Of course, even with pairing, I always recommend tasting the tea straight just to understand the tea profile and see if to really understand the tea before adding any elements. Because depending on what you just had, any remaining flavors, taste in the mouth, it's going to interfere or I would say not interfere because that has a negative connotation, but it will interact with the sip of tea that you'll be drinking. So I recommend more purposeful pairing. And we did a class on you know pairing aged teas with different honeys, different single flower honeys. And that was really interesting because we typically think of honey as a very singular flavor profile. Like we think of maybe it's the uh, more generic the honey in a bear jar, or maybe it's um, just, you know, wildflower honey or something like that. But if you taste lavender honey versus chestnut honey, right? And all these honey actually have different flavor profiles. So depending on which honey you pair with which tea, the result actually varies by a lot. What's next for Monsa Tea and you professionally? You guys are doing classes and stuff and obviously have the online shop and everything, but what's next? I also work as a tea consultant. So this is something that I've done before COVID mostly. And then I haven't really picked up on this post-COVID or during COVID. Is it still during COVID? It looks like I might be doing a, a tea consulting for a restaurant slash tea place in New York. And also working on, we are releasing, I guess by the time this record's out, we'll have our new tea packaging ready and we're trying to actually do get more into the retail space as well. So that those are on the radar. And of course, with all in mind of bringing HT to more tea lovers in a you know, beginner friendly way, hopefully we can convert more people. Any plans to open like a retail shop at all? Or I mean, New York real estate's astronomically expensive. So, or is the virtual kind of remote online model just mainly the way to go? Um, I think it's actually also a personal decision for me. I am not a big fan of opening up a retail space for me. I don't want to be sort of like tied down to a space and have long-term lease. I do like the virtual space. I think with virtual, you do have you know power to really connect people, connect with people who are 
not in the same city as you. So I really like that aspect. You know, it's not just tea lovers in New York that we can reach. So I think that really opens up more opportunities for us. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, sommelier Chris O'Hearn of Parcel Wine, which is a importer and distributor of wine here uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, so not too far away. Uh, he left behind a question for you. Why is it so difficult to convince people that it matters where their food and drinks come from? I think some people just don't want to pay the price for it. I think given the same price, let's just say $20, if you're paying the same $20, of course, you would prefer to you know, buy something that's made sustainably on, you know, just better on you no know, single origin. But I think for some people, it's hard to pay, let's say, that extra five, 10 bucks, or maybe let's say like 30% more or whatever that number is. And it's personal for everyone to do that on what some may think of as a you know commodity, right? But it's not everyone, right? I mean, there are definitely people who think that way, but there are absolutely, you know, people who think that it's definitely worth it, right? So uh, I do see more of that happening these days, especially with more focus on sustainability, that people do care more or it's starting to care more about where it's coming from. And um, they're willing to pay a little bit more for the quality and you know transparency and also sustainability. And I think it's really crucial because it, it is hard when I understand it's hard, right? Because you don't see it when you're tasting tea and let's say, you know, it's out of the package. If I'm just looking at tea leaves, right? It's not screaming at you where it's from and, you know, you don't really see it. You're not there on site seeing how it's tea growing, directly seeing someone picking the leaves and making the tea leaves, right? And because if you see it and you spill your loose leaf tea bag somewhere, you would try to actually get every crumb into it if you know how hard it is to make it, right? Each tea leaves actually handpicked by hand. But if you don't have that experience of going out in the field in the sun and picking leaf by leaf yourself, you, you don't really feel that the same way about, you know, your food products. So I think there's definitely the disconnect when you are just, you know, consuming something from a box that just makes it a little bit more disconnected and okay that because you're not interacting with it in, in that way on a day-to-day basis. But I do think um, things are changing now though. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Oh, I actually wanted to ask this one. I, you, I know you asked me, but I want another guest to answer this, um, especially uh, someone who's actually you know, has a restaurant or you know running a restaurant or you know, hospitality. Why aren't you offering tea pairing on your menu? Right. And gotta ask the people who's actually, you know, putting on the menu, not me. This next question comes from one of our listeners. What's the best method to store tea to preserve the flavor and maximize the length of time before it expires? So it actually depends on the type of tea, but assuming it's not an aged tea and um, this listener is referring to a regular tea that's meant to be consumed as fast as possible, you know, for example, uh, lightly roasted oolong or you know, green tea or black tea, uh, the best way is to have it you know, in a sealed container away from sunlight, not like Ziploc where it's transparent, but you know, light proofed bag and also away from sunlight. And 
I would also not store it in a cabinet that's too near the stove or where the cooking is happening. As sometimes the tea leaves are very absorbent. So unless the container is very odor-proof as well, that the tea leaves can actually absorb a lot of odor around them. So away from light and away from odor. And the other method is to, for example, last, you know, lightly roasted oolong that's some people do store it in the freezer because it's cool and dark. I personally don't like them because whenever I taste oolong that's been stored in the freezer, it just doesn't taste good to me. I think it just maybe it depends on how long it's been stored in the freezer. So maybe short duration is fine, but after and but I just kind of taste like a little flat. So with puer tea, what's the best way to store that? Because I'm assuming light, moisture are both the main enemy of that too as well. It depends on which container you have it in. So as I mentioned, puer tea is typically, the original one comes in tea cakes or tea bricks, which is compressed loose leaves. But when we sell in pouches, they're basically loosened from that and they're in pouches. If you have, if you buy a pouch of Puer tea or other aged teas, you can store it like that. Um, and typically just away from, you know, light and odor, the same principles I mentioned earlier works in this case as well. I also don't really recommend aging in that form for a long time, but typically when people are buying, you know, an ounce or two ounces, they're not really buying to age for, you know, 10 years. So it's really for, you know, more short term, maybe a few years maximum of storage that they would do that. Now, if you're talking about buying a tea cake and, you know, actually getting into aging, it can get a lot more complicated really quickly. Because of course, now that we're really talking about long-term horizon, it really needs to be light and odor-free, but also you have to now take into consideration the temperature and humidity. So if you're really serious about it, right, same with wine in that once you get really serious, you start getting the, you know, wine storage, you know, and you really get into wine cellar and all that. If you are a kind of starting wine enthusiast, if you have a few bottles and you don't have a fridge, right, then you might also just use or like under the bed, but or you know somewhere um, that's kind of cool or in the basement and try to not disturb it, right? So there are a few ways to get around it without going all fancy and all out. So similarly with tea cakes, you would find somewhere it's there's enough airflow but also not too much because you also don't want all the aroma to sort of evaporate and you know, go into the air. But, and I would say with humidity and temperature, of course, too hot or too cold is bad. With humidity, it actually depends because you can go high humidity route and go wet storage or you can go dry humidity. So it actually depends and I'm getting too technical here. So you're not because it's making me think of almost like cigars. So like, is there anything that's like that for a humidor or something like that, that works for, for puer tea? Once you're getting really serious, there are, um, there isn't like in this country, I wasn't able to find something that's for you know, tea specific, but you can actually get humidors that's used for like cigars or, you know, like other fragile items and, and really matched to the, humidity level that you like. But what I typically recommend people do is taste a lot of 
tea and figure out what type of tea from which storage, what type of storage, like what type of humidity level you like before going into that route, because you don't want to invest in, you know, let's say like 150, you know, $250 of tea cake, and then expect it to age well. And in 10 years, not doing too well based on what you set, right? So and the good news is that you could actually taste along the way, which is a little bit different from wine, right? You can actually taste the tea leaves and continue age. So it shouldn't be a surprise, but I always just recommend that try some from dry storage, try, try some from wet storage, see which conditions you like, uh, and then kind of go from there. So this last set of questions we have, we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, a nice compare and contrast across the episodes for the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your tea career thus far? I would say, yeah, Jane Pattigrew was really inspiring. So I mentioned that, you know, I went to get my tea sommelier certificate from the UK, from London specifically. And I think it was very inspiring to see a person, a woman who's been in the industry for 40 years and still yet so passionate passionate about what she does. And yet... Although she has so much knowledge, she's always so humble and approachable in it. And I think that was actually really inspiring to see someone like that. What is your desert island tea? You get stuck on a desert island, you can only drink, you know, one tea. What's that one tea that you have to drink all the time? Have to go with raw puer. It is absolutely my favorite. Um, it's the one that I actually I crave. You know what you like when you are void of it for like a like a week, and then you immediately go for that specific flavor profile. Like that's what you like. And raw puer is that for me. It's the one that I always crave. The other one's sort of like, okay, this weather, today's weather, you know, feels like sunny and let me try this one. But raw puer all year round, like very good tea. So I'll go with raw puer. What's a restaurant you'd recommend that has a great, you know, tea program? Ideally, I would like to answer this once um, I'm confirmed on this like tea consultant assignment because they're they're doing really good tea there and they are working on um, tea pairing and it's I think it's going to be really really great because they're the thing is with a lot of restaurants it's not they don't have as much you know top down support of tea programs and even when they do when someone leaves that tea program kind of loses its direction um do a change of management but this tea actually it's really high up and they're making it really big in new york so bucket list uh travel destination bucket list restaurant so any place that you haven't visited that you still want to go to and then any place that you have not dined at that you still want to eat at one day the galapagos is on my list yes we all learn about darwin so we really want to go there it's actually um i recently got married actually not so recent it was early June. So, uh, but we haven't gone on our honeymoon yet. So we're trying to go there now. And who dining scene. Mm -hmm. I recently moved to Park Slope. So I'm actually looking for a good sushi place in Brooklyn right now. So I used to have my go-to in New York and they actually recently closed down. So right now I'm actually just going to all the... <laughs> Omakase sushi places in New York to find the one to replace our old uh, go-to place. So I would say any Omakase sushi place in Brooklyn 
I'm going to go to all of them and then pick out the best one. <laughs> food or drink, guilty pleasures or anything that's just candy, fast food, anything that's snack that you just know is not super healthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. My thing is sour candies. Sour, the be- the sour, the better. From sour belts to there's Haribo Sgetti, um, which is really bad for your teeth. It's very also sticky and it's like that worst, uh, probably the worst two dentist nightmares are probably, you know, like sour plus it's sticky to your teeth. You know, those are really bad. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, at our wedding, we had a sour candy bar in lieu of our wedding cake because we love sour candies. Tea recommendation. So I know you kind of mentioned earlier when I asked, you know, where somebody should start, you know, when getting into to tea and especially aged tea. What's kind of the one tea that you'd recommend, you know, people who are above kind of the starter level, but still not super knowledgeable out there? What's the one thing that you think they should try? I'd actually go with white peony still. So I know I mentioned it's really for the sweet tea lovers, but white peony, if the person hasn't tried much of aged white tea or has tried in the past, but thought, I don't know. It's like, okay, was their reaction? I would direct them to white peony because it's just literally like drinking liquid honey and what's, there's nothing bad about it, right? (laughs) So you can't really go wrong with it. So I would love for a person to sort of um, change their uh, misconception about aged white tea. Um, The other I would say is raw puer. I would love if that person had a bad experience with raw puer, I would love for that person to reach out to me and ask for recommendations because like it's it's the type of tea that once you find the right one, you fall in love with, but it can be difficult to um find the right one and get there. Yeah. Favorite Instagram account you follow? I've been actually off uh, social media lately. Once I start, I feel like I'm on it. <laughs> I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody was. If you were, is there a moment episode scene that uh, always stands out to you about him? Or if you weren't, is there anybody who was on TV, culinary personality, Emerald, Guy Fieri, whoever kind of always gravitated towards? I have watched a few of um, Anthony Bourdain's shows. Actually, my husband loves watching food shows, food YouTubers, um, but he watches more food uh, programs than I do. And I'd say that... I think there was an, actually, I think this was Anthony Bourdain. Um, there was an episode of him in, he was Cambodia or Vietnam. He was sitting down at, at a table. It was, of course, like a street vendor. He was sitting down, you know, one-on-one on kind of drinking the political climate of the country over food and how it was impacting the quality of food and the food culture. I was watching that episode and I was what the reason why I kind of remember the episode is that how interconnected food is, right? We're not just talking about the, like the flavor profiles or, you know, like the something that we taste, but we were talking about how, how food has impacted the, the social system on the political system, right? Just a way, you know, for tea, right? We, maybe we talk about how tea industry impacts some of those tea growing countries, right? It's a big uh, feel for their economy, right? And sometimes we don't really think about those aspects aside from just joy that we get from tea, which is also, you know, a big part of it. But um, some of those like broader, um, broader climates that it touches upon was kind of interesting to me. 
Where can people find you? Social media. I know you said you were off it, but you guys have a social media account, uh, website, you know, kind of plug everything. You can find us at mansat.com. That is M-A-N-S-A-T-E-A.com. And our social media is mansa underscore T. There's an online shop. Uh, you guys still do virtual classes, virtual tastings too, right? A couple times a month. At mansat.com, you can find our online shop as well as any tea class inquiries and information you can find there as well. And if a restaurant wants to get in touch with you about consulting on a tea program, just shoot you over an email through the website. Yep. Our uh, website does have a contact us form and we do monitor it. So you will get a reply if you reach out through that channel. This was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. Super informative, super educational, super interesting too as well. Just for somebody that, especially like myself, never been a, a giant tea drinker, you know, up to this point and and have kind of started exploring, you know, other things and other beverages, you know, sake and, and a whole bunch of other stuff outside of your normal beer and wine and everything. It's super interesting to learn, you know, how similar it is to wine in terms of vintages and different years, flavor profiles and everything. So it's awesome what you're doing. There's nothing like it out there. It's an awesome site, an awesome concept, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys got in the future and the restaurant that you partner with. I'm super excited for you for that. And um, yeah, we'll be fans and following along and uh, trying out some tea for sure. Sounds good. Thank you so much for inviting me here. This was a wonderful hour that we spent together. So thank you again and hope to see you again soon. A big thanks again to Ashley for taking some time out of her day and coming on the podcast to chat about tea and educate me about the background of tea and aged tea and poor tea. Uh, like I said, it's a lot of stuff I didn't know, a lot of stuff I just you know, was super curious about. We've encountered tea pairings here and there, but a lot of restaurants don't have tea on the menu and part of it's lack of demand maybe in that marketplace. And some of it, I think too, is just lack of knowledge and people don't know what they should build out for a tea program. So Hopefully we start seeing more of that. Uh, there's a few restaurants here around in Columbus uh, that do have kind of a couple different tea options, but then, you know, it's usually your more upscale kind of Michelin star type restaurants, not exactly Michelin starred that, uh, that have tea programs. So again, you can follow them on Instagram at Monza underscore tea. Uh, check out the website, monzatea.com for all your tea needs and kind of discovering what they have available to as well. Follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform and feel free to reach out and contact us. I appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. A bunch of episodes for you to check out. If you're a longtime listener, appreciate your continued support and continuing to listen. The podcast keeps growing. You know, we just had our, our best month. The month before that was our best month there. So, you know, every time I don't really look at the numbers too, too much, about once a month, but every time I do, I'm shocked that it's, you know, we're outpacing the previous month. So really appreciate everybody, you know, spreading the word, word of mouth, all that stuff. Can't thank you guys enough. So we got more cool stuff on the way, uh, more episodes throughout the rest of the year here too. So uh, looking forward to releasing those and pretty awesome conversations that we've had. So good stuff around the corner. But again, appreciate everybody. And we will talk to you guys next week.